You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. Discover how you can join us in a spirit-led movement to bring about human flourishing grounded in love, generosity, and belonging by visiting ignitingimagination.org. Hello, and welcome back to Igniting Imagination. I'm your host, Lisa Greenwood, and joining me is my good friend and co-host for this season, Shannon Hopkins. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Lisa. Oh, it's great to be back. Yes. So we've named many of the common threads that run through our season on facing reality and claiming leadership, the challenge of polarization, the decline of the dominant system of the church, the need to slow down and rest in the midst of an accelerating age. Our guest today, Dr. Randy Woodley, will speak to these realities through the unique lens he offers as an Indigenous American who has spent his career as an activist, farmer, and scholar, active in ongoing concerns of racism, diversity, eco-justice, reconciliation, ecumenism, interfaith dialogue, mission, social justice, and Indigenous peoples. Randy is a Cherokee Indian descendant recognized by the Kitawa Band. He has recently retired from serving as Distinguished Professor of Faith and Culture at George Fox Seminary and soon to be on the faculty of the Center for Action and Contemplation. Now, Randy and his wife, Edith, are the founders of Elahe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Elahe Farm and Seeds outside of Portland, Oregon. Through Elahe, they invite people to a new relationship with creation and model sustainable farming practices and earth justice. You can learn more about their work in our show notes. So this was a rich conversation with Randy. And Shannon, you had experience with Randy's work before this conversation. I'm, I'm curious what is meaningful about his work to you and, and what you heard in particular in this conversation that has stood out to you. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Um, I encountered Randy's work through his book on practices, The 100 Days to Living Differently with, you know, and how can we learn from nature? And and I'd had several people refer that book to me, and I thought it was so practical. And, you know, Randy doesn't mince words. It's And there's, yeah. some, there's some hard things that come up in his conversation. And to be honest, I think, you know, the issues around, like, land back and how we really deal with our origin stories as it relates to indigenous peoples, it's complex. And he really tries to both acknowledge the complexities, not mince words about it, but then give us practical ways through. And how do we begin living differently with nature? And I think it's such a gift to the church in this moment. And to be honest, in this moment with climate catastrophe, I think it's the gift. If we will really work to reconcile, and I, th- I think it's the gift that he brings and people like him bring to us in this moment. Yeah, I think his work's meaningful because of that. I think it does bring a gift, but I also think it's not without challenge. But most good gifts aren't, <laughs> I find, these right. days. <laughs> That's an important word. Most good gifts aren't without challenge. And I mean, I appreciate that you're naming how challenging this is. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that I I don't have this voice 
a voice like his in my life very often. And, um, and I'm struck by how challenging it is to me and how grateful I am that he ties it so deeply into faith. And it's, it's not, I guess the, the part that is sort of confessional to me is that I have tended to think of my lens is so Western and so white when I look at my faith. And so when I hear the resonance with scripture and the resonance with Jesus's teachings, um, with what he's saying, it, um, it both challenges me and inspires me. And, um, so I need his voice. Um, I need in speaking into me and challenging the way I think about how I see the world and how I see, like you said, our origin story in, in the United States, particularly, and how I understand what it means to enter into these conversations from a faith perspective, understanding the call of Jesus to to love well, to um, understand us as a part of creation, and um, and what that means for how we interact with each other and and the world and our and creation. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you. I need I need it more. And it's so easy to just be in our own history, trajectory, yeah. story. It makes me think, too, about Pauline Boss's comment about it, when she was talking about ambiguous loss and our origin story. It's mm. like, oh, interesting how these two conversations actually do go together as well. Wow. That's a that's a great intersection. So if you all as listeners haven't listened to the Pauline Boss episode, I encourage you to do so. So let's listen to our conversation with Dr. Woodley. Dr. Woodley, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. It, I've been so looking forward to this. Um, this season is all about facing reality and claiming leadership. And you are known for having this amazing capacity for sharing difficult truths in a spirit of love and acceptance. And so I'd like to start by inviting you to share some of those truths with us um, as we continue to name the reality that we're all facing. And, and I think especially related to the issues that you've long written and spoken about, things like eco-justice and diversity and racial justice, and what are some of the difficult truths that we need to understand as a people? Well, that's a great first question. I appreciate it. <laughs> Let's just jump right in, right? <laughs> right away, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I'd say, you know, first of all, thanks for the, you know, the idea of speaking the truth in love. It's kind of hopefully been my moniker lately, but I certainly didn't start out that way. Mm. <laughs> I, I was pretty abrasive in the old days, but uh, mm. um, but yeah, I finally, I think, got to the place where I, I want to be able to to love people and love the earth and love community creation and treat us all with respect. So, yeah, uh, I think the, the, the main thing, uh, that most of us are missing is the effect that the Western worldview has had on, uh, not just our world, but the church in particular. And, um, we look at things like, uh, 
oh, like, you know, like we're, we're being um, neutral or objective or whatever. And, and we have no idea how much we've really been affected by the Western worldview and the Platonic dualism that uh, came about, you know, over 2000 years ago. And all the sort of uh, subsidiary spinoffs of that dualism and how it's affected the church so much. And, and this is exactly why we have basically um, a uh, non-embodied, uh, disembodied theology. Mm. Right? So we think that's okay, but that has nothing to do with what Jesus taught. Yeah. Jesus didn't teach a disembodied theology. In fact, he taught that basically your faith comes by your actions. Um, as opposed to your beliefs. So I I like to say, you know, uh, Jesus really didn't care much about beliefs. He uh, challenged uh, some groups of Pharisees at many different times. He, um, you know, picked corn on the Sabbath. He, um, you know, talked about the ox being in the ditch on the the Sabbath. He uh, did all kinds of things that, that, you know, people got upset about, religious people. And, And we're right back to the place where the Pharisees were. Now we're like, mm-hmm. you know, it's what we believe. Do you, you know, they had the argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you believe in the resurrection or do you not? And uh, basically, um, we look at that. Uh, we look at that. There are theological lenses for the past couple thousand years that have been formed mostly by Western dualists in Europe, um, Western men who are uh, dualistic, platonically dualistic in Europe. And we've come up with a, a sort of a worldview and a theology that was never meant to look at the scriptures that way. Um, the people who wrote the scriptures were more like indigenous people. Um, they wrote the uh, the stories that they wrote, ninety percent of scripture is story, not with the idea of you know, is this you know, did this happen? Is this true? And uh, but what is the truth in the story? And I think that's one of the main points that we're missing. Uh, We have uh, looked at the scriptures and said, oh, we have to prove or disprove this. So more progressive folks try to prove something didn't happen sometimes, like parting of the Red Sea. You know, oh, it was the Reed Sea and it was only two feet deep and there was a strong wind. And, you know, that's how it makes. And, uh, you know, more uh, conservative folks, uh, you know, no, it did happen. And God came through in the middle. And. Either of those are the wrong question. The question is, what are we? What is the truth in the story that we need? And that's the way that the writers wrote them and intended them to be interpreted. So that's that's just sort of a, a big swipe here at first. Um, yeah, we're, we don't really know how to interpret the scriptures, and they haven't for several thousand years. Yeah. So that big swipe, as you say, the big broad brushstroke of uh, dualism and disembodied faith, connect those dots to the work that you've been doing around eco-justice and... and well, let's talk sal- another big, a big uh, swap. Sure. Um, uh, <laughs> sure. That's the, the idea of salvation. So, uh, and, and uh, the, you know, one of my professors, one of my theology professors was a, uh, a free Methodist, um, and that's Howard Snyder. I don't know if you're familiar hmm. with Howard Snyder. But he wrote a book called uh, Salvation is Creation Healed. And uh, he wrote that after our native guys came through and were his students. And uh, and I think we might have influenced that just a little bit as well. But uh, it's a wonderful book, incredible book. I've used it in my courses that I've taught. But the idea is that a, a much better word for our understanding of theology today instead of salvation is, is heal, 
healing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, so, so. now is our healing much uh, closer than when we first began, right? That sort of idea is not just for us, but it's for the whole, what I call the community of creation. So um, the idea of restoration, salvation, if you will, healing is for the healing of us all, not just for my individual healing. And so we've, that's another um, subsidiary of this dualism is the individualism, right? Hierarchies, individualism, uh, all of these external extrinsic uh, classifications and categorizations, all of these things are sort of tied into this dualistic idea. But, um, but if we don't begin to understand like the world that the people lived in and the worldview that they had was about everything around them. It wasn't just about like their soul or, you know, that's, or, or, or and we see in, in evangelicals have not known what to do with these passages, like the Philippian jailer and all his whole family was healed. Right. So we're, we're interested in what we've been doing is trying to create a holistic model of uh, following Jesus um, and caring for the whole community of creation and the whole world and the whole community. And that includes uh, the body of Christ, of course. But we're not this little bubble that Hmm. gets Jesus all to ourselves. This is Jesus is big enough for everybody. I love that. Interestingly, I'm going to segue a little bit. But when I first came to the UK, I felt like that I was starting to hear people speak like that, that it's salvation is about the healing of the whole. It's it's God's redemption of everything, the environment, household. So I love the way you're you're bringing that in. I, I'd love you to talk a little bit, Randy, about just like the fact that you are Cherokee descendant. And I'd love to know what your experience as an indigenous American in our country has been and how that has shaped your experience of racial justice and how it's leading your work. And yeah, I'd just love for you to share a bit. Yeah. Well, I, I had to come back to my indigeneity. So I, I was raised by a couple of people, both uh, mixed blood Cherokees who were pretty assimilated. And so I had to go outside the home to find any sense mm-hmm. of uh, traditionalism or those kinds of things. And uh, I, I did. I'm from a young age. I started sort of searching for those kinds of things. And, and then finally, um, when I after high, I spent my two years in Alaska with Native people as uh, what I call my missionary oppressor years. Um, I learned all the <laughs> things that I shouldn't be doing. And as a result, uh, did some deep study and uh, went to uh, what's now Palmer Seminary and uh, got what I needed. I think there I was it was not only getting the sort of the holistic gospel, but I was I was getting um, the opportunity to do research in my own among my own people. And then finally, after that, went to Oklahoma, spent time with a lot of traditional people and uh, was able to sort of look and go, oh, yeah, this is the worldview that that makes sense. This is the worldview of my ancestors. Um, this is the one that I need to be looking at everything with, like the scriptures and everything else. So, so that had to be sort of rebuilt for me. Like we all, you know, we're all indigenous from somewhere, right? Like um, our people survived somewhere um, uh, for, for thousands and thousands of years as indigenous people. And then they start getting in civilizations and then those civilizations all crumble one after the other. And uh so, so we just need to remember that we're all indigenous in, in one way or another. I, I make a difference between 
capital I indigenous, the people who are on this land at this time and have been here for thousands of years, and small I indigenous, which which includes everybody. Um, and uh, indigeneity really means how to live uh, with the earth and the community of creation around me, not just on the earth. And so, yeah, and that's been really helpful. I've had a lot of elders in my life throughout the the years who have helped my wife and I have spent a lot of time learning together um, from, from various elders who adopted us and took us on and, and helped us. And so um, when I challenge people to change their worldview, I know it can be done because, you know, I had to, to work on that myself. And, and uh, of course I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I used to be. So. So I, I would love to hear you talk about um, the, the, gift of indigenous spirituality and what we can learn from it and what you have learned and what you can share with us and how that has informed your work. But I, but I'm also interested in what the, the church can be learning from indigenous spirituality. Yeah. Well, so I like, I listened to a couple of your podcasts and, uh, and I, I think there was a whole lot of truth being spoken, but I think it's, it's, it's truth that, that comes, uh, doesn't back up far enough. Right. Hmm. So there's things behind these things. Like when we talk about the church, we don't really have a good idea of what the church is supposed to be. What we've created is some kind of a, you know, like a, uh, a model that is uh, premised on, you know, sort of corporate reality and corporate structuring and, and those kinds of things. Um, uh, probably spiritual authority that doesn't, uh, that's based on hierarchy as opposed to, hmm people working together, which is always a better idea. Um, those are in, in sort of a corporateness as opposed to individualism. And these are the kinds of things that, that have created what we call our American values, but our American values are, are pretty well set opposite of what the values Jesus taught are. And so, um, indigenous people have a much closer reality and much closer values to the teachings of Jesus. I always say the first dilemma in America with the the Puritans and pilgrims was, you know, they met people who actually had more Christian values than they did, but had never heard of Jesus. And so, um, uh, and I think that's where we are today as well. Our indigenous people have a lot to teach uh, the church if the church is willing to listen. Now, you know, the church is pretty much in a place, as one of your podcasts said, where it's, you know, at best holding its own and at worst in serious decline. Um, and so what we need to get back to and figure out like, well, why is the church not working? Um, because it's it, it's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be built on, mm-hmm. you know, cooperativeness and, and uh, corporateness and holisticness and, you know, um, uh, embodied theologies and not uh, disembodied theologies and and not doctrinal statements as opposed to our beliefs as opposed to what we actually do with our lives. What we native mm-hmm. people, what you do is what you believe. And so, um, and and I think that's pretty much what Jesus taught. So um, there's just a whole lot of things, but you know, it it takes going back and saying, wait a minute, I have been affected by a a worldview that was so totally wrong. It's it's a failed experiment. It's gotten us to the brink of extinction. And uh, if we don't change that worldview, we're not going to have time to change the church because I'm not sure humanity is going to survive. So we've got to be serious uh, about 
uh, re-evaluating our values and our theologies and our whole worldview. And I think indigenous people are the, at least on this continent and maybe many others as well, but um, are the people who can uh, sort of get us going there and get us moving in the right direction. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, a lot of people say, well, that, you know, that's a big job. It seems like a lost cause. Well, you know, I think God deals especially with lost causes. Right? You just said a minute ago, we've got to get serious about this or humanity might not exist, uh, might not be around. And I'm thinking about your recent book, Becoming Rooted, the 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth, which I have and really have enjoyed. I wonder if you could talk to our listeners about why becoming rooted in the earth is so important and what can we learn from connecting more with creation and why this is so important at this moment in time in your mind. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, and, and this is nothing new, of course, right? I mean, the oldest book in scripture, Job 12, seven uh, and following is, you know, this, this wonderful scripture, Ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you. So, you know, this is not a new idea, but because we have had such a disembodied theology and a, 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 such a, a parochial uh, sort of bubble, like God's only at work in the church, right, that uh, we've not been able to see the whole picture. And so now, Talking to animals, talking to the earth, asking the trees to teach us, those kinds of ideas, that's considered animism now, right? Mm. Because we have lost touch with our own indigeneity. So it's important now to sort of reclaim those kinds of values. Um, If, uh, you know, we're we're in what I call, people have called this the uh, Anthropocene. So uh, the Anthropocene means it's human caused. What's happening in with climate change and in the the sort of brink of disaster that we're teetering on? I call it the Europatrocene because there was a particular worldview that's responsible for this. Not all peoples, but it was particularly Europeans, um, a European worldview, and it was particularly a male-dominated uh, hierarchy of worldview. And those are the people who were writing everything. And, you know, and wonderfully, we're discovering all kinds of writings by women now and other people um, and from the past. But, but that's what dominated our worldview. And so um, if we're not going to have this male-dominated European worldview, then we've got to say, well, what else is there? I, one of your programs was talking about adaption, adaptation. Adaptation is, a, is something that we learn from nature. I mean, that's pretty much the, the number one rule of nature is to adapt. And what's happening to the earth right now is that the earth is adapting. And the earth is saying like, well, you know, uh, people weren't meant to be the major consumers. You know, I've got this whole thing I do with, you know, like where energy comes from and how it's the most energy that's spent, who consumes the most. And But it, the bottom line is that large mammals like people are are way down the list, we're what we call tertiary consumers. But right now, we are we become the primary consumers. Mm-hmm. And it's throwing everything off balance. We've drained the earth of its oh, resources. Yeah. We've sucked out the aquifers and, you know, pulled out, uh, you know, uh, petroleum and coal and all the rest. 
And so the earth is responding. And the earth is basically saying, you know, enough of this. Uh, Deuteronomy has a great uh, uh, sort of a, a phrase that I think fits this perfectly. It says, and it was talking about spiritual pollution, which this is also, by the way, uh, when we treat the, treat the earth that way, that is spiritual pollution. But it says that the earth will spit out its inhabitants. And that's exactly what's happening with climate change. We're seeing, you know, 100-year floods, you know, three times in five years in some places. We're seeing droughts in places that never exist before. You know, uh, the the increase of, in, of severity and frequency of hurricanes and tornadoes and all of these things. This is the earth spitting out its inhabitants. And as it says uh, in Proverbs, the just suffer with the unjust. If we continue to allow this, if good people who say, wait a minute, these are not the values we want, continue to allow this. And this means getting into politics, right? It means getting in and lobbying. It means getting in and doing ground community organizing, ground level stuff. The church in America, the white church in particular, um, the black church has been pretty good at this, but the white churches said, oh, we stay out of politics. And that's part of that individualism. Hmm. So our systems actually have to be changed in order to heal the earth and bring things back into balance. So I wrote the book, um, Becoming Rooted, to, um, like, I, you know, I've written lots of other things um, to sort of challenge that from an intellectual and theological place. But Becoming Rooted is just sort of like, I wanted to, like, if, if we're going to change, it's, it's a constant thing. We have to think about it every day. So, so my, my challenge was, can I get people to walk with me for 100 days? and just sort of see things from an indigenous perspective. Not that I have all the answers. Uh, all those aren't my answers in there. They're, they're my experiences. But our indigenous people um, that, that we've known and elders and others have. And so, so I wanted to just sort of write something short because most people don't have a lot of time to read anymore and, and, and just something that I could get people to walk with me for 100 days. And, and the feedback that I've gotten from that has been incredible. You know, I had numerous peoples and groups do like 100-day journeys for that. And at the end, they talk about how their worldview has changed and things. And so um, the success of that book is, is I think, proving that, that it can be done. And, um, of course, I'm not the only one probably saying these things. But, but that was the, the point of Becoming Rooted was to try and get people to continually think about this change of worldview. I so appreciate that you took what was and has been for you um, a, a, an important academic project, if you will, in terms of connecting those dots and making the argument and what we do in the academy. But you said what matters is are people going to live it? And you put it into this um, resource, if you will, uh, that's accessible and, and such. And, and the other thing you've done is you've said, okay, I'm going to live this. And you have a farm called Ayla Hay. Did I do it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, where people can come and learn about sustainable and regenerative agricultural practices and 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 so much more. And so um, w- we have a cohort, in fact, that's going to be visiting and, and learning from you later this year. I, I'd, I'd love for you to share a bit of the vision and why it's important and, and what you all are doing. Yeah, thank you. The vision for Ayla Hay came about in 1998, 
and the idea was, um, so, so my wife and I have been involved in every kind of uh, Native work we can, every kind of Native ministry. We were in Anadarko for a long time, and we were in, I uh, was a sort of a, uh, what would you call a, a, a DM, I think, uh, and uh, district minister. Is that what uh, the Methodists have? Um, DS, a DS, district superintendent. Yeah. Sorry, terminology wrong. No, that's good. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, so I had 10 native churches I was responsible for. And then I also uh, ran a uh, Christian center, which was a place for youth to come. And we did after school tutoring and computer learning. This was sort of when computers were just getting popular and um, fixed up the building. And uh, I think we had like 17 ministries going out of that place at one time with you know, uh, to unwed mothers and houseless people and, you know, after school tutoring and language programs and, yeah, wow. you know, all these different things that we've done throughout the years. But the whole thing is that the the church uh, and the government, uh, hand in hand, basically set Indian people up to be dependent upon them. That was the goal. And so, um, and, and so in a lot of ways, all of our denominations are still pretty paternalistic toward indigenous people. And so uh, we were always thinking like, well, what's a, a model or what's a way that, well, what can we do that will empower our people and not make them dependent? And so um, we thought about that. I pastored for seven years in Carson City, a, a native church, and experimented a lot there. And, and then one night I had a dream uh, in 1998. And uh, it was of this place, uh, Elahe. The idea was it was uh, a place where indigenous people could come and be empowered, learning both life skills and sustainable farming. And and because a lot of our people have land, right, and, and a lot of uh, chronic diseases like diabetes uh, rampant in our Indian communities and, and a school and a cultural center, a place where we could practice our culture freely. Well, we eventually lost, uh, we, we bought a place in, uh, when I was doing my PhD at the East Stanley Jones School, um, and you guys should be familiar with that, hopefully, um, at uh, Asbury Seminary. And mm-hmm. uh, during that time, when uh, several of us indigenous guys were working on our PhDs in intercultural studies, uh, we purchased a piece of land uh, seven miles from there and uh, 50 acres and basically started that and it was going like gangbusters and mm. but we lost it due to violent pressure from white supremacists um and so we lost everything kind of moving to oregon becoming a a professor at uh, portland seminary but we had to start again and so there have been now and then the next place we were able to afford was a three acre farm and that was just too small for the vision so we looked and we were there for nine years and and then finally, we were able to buy the property that we're on now, which is 10 acres and quite diverse in its um, uh, in the environment that it, it, it exhibits here. And so uh, the idea was to bring people here, um, originally just indigenous people. But what we found out along the way, you know, really in Kentucky, was that if just indigenous people get healed, um, and come back to their roots and that sort of thing, come back to an indigenous worldview. That's not going to do a lot of good because, you know, we all need that, right? And so we, it's not very holistic to, to just take one group of people and say, you know, let's heal you guys. Um, that's really important. But um, we also found that there are lots of non-indigenous people on the way or, or white folks mostly who were looking for this or looking for like values that, that match the worldview that they wanted to have. And, 
And so um, those kinds of values, which are, I think, are extremely important uh, that indigenous people hold are the kinds of values that can not just uh, heal us, um, bring us closer to creator. Um, and also, I, I hate to say save the, the world or save the earth because I think the earth is going to be okay, but maybe humanity's not. And so maybe mm-hmm. restore or heal humanity. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a big task. And I used to think, oh, popularity was the way to that, right? So the more popular you become, the you know, the more people you can speak to, and that. But that's sort of, I think, more of a superficial view of of how to look at things. And what we decided was, if we can just live our lives in one model of this, just um, how we live daily, and exhibit those values, and host people that that will have, you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words, right? So that will have more influence uh, in the long run. Um, in our world. And so that's what we've dedicated our lives to to do. Oh, I want to come now more than ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I right. um, uh, can I, I just want to know that what's, what's ringing in my mind, Randy, as you, as you talk about this, is I'm thinking, where is the church and how do people, leaders in the church begin to, to move towards this way of, of being and healing towards healing. And I don't know, I guess I just wonder, I'd love to hear you just talk about what, when you think about the church and its work in the world and as it relates to the healing of creation and a more embodied theology, what would you say to the church and to leaders leading the church today? Yeah. So one of the big things that's missing, of course, is what I, uh, and I wrote my first book on this, um, Living in Color, Embracing God's Passion for Ethnic Diversity. And so um, the idea is, you know, this whole idea of unity and diversity has been wiped out by our our individualistic, homogeneous, you know, racism and the rest. And so, um, so we've created these categories that we feed into. And so, but but God's world is not like that. Everything in God's world is built on the premise of unity and diversity. So, because that's who Creator is, and so um, we have this uh, fingerprint or DNA of God everywhere around us. There's there's nothing singular in the whole multiverse. Nothing. Even you go down to the most subatomic particles, which are called quarks. Now they're inside atoms, right? And those quarks. Uh, change colors and they move around and everything else, but there's never one cork that's alone, which I find very interesting. Oh, interesting. There's nothing singular yeah. in the whole universe, and so um, and and it's all different. So we haven't even embraced the differences when we think, oh well, we're an all white church, you know, not quite. I mm. mean, that's the American myth, right? But we're different genders, we're different income levels, we're different jobs, we're different mm-hmm. perspectives. Um, there's a lot of diversity. We're just afraid to tap into it. And so a lot of my students would say, you know, I'm just sick of us being the, the you know, all white church and we're not growing that way. And we're not. And I'm like, you know, I ask them, well, are you all like Republicans? No. Are you all Democrats? No. Are you all male? Are you No. And so I'm like, maybe what you should do is explore all the diversity and learn to love each other in the midst of all that. Um, and then when you're ready, God will give you more diversity. But the problem is, is that we've not allowed, you know, women to speak by and large. We've not allowed people without education in a lot of churches to speak. 
And so what we don't realize is that this process, when, when, when we come together as community, you know, it's the process that's important. But if only one or two people or three or a board or whoever is basically in charge of that process and saying we've got most of the answers. And, and just by the way, most of our churches look, that's apparent. you got one person up speaking and everybody else is looking at the back of everyone else's heads, which mm-hmm. is disrespectful. There's no native ceremonies like that, by the way. We're all looking at each other's faces, even mm-hmm. when we have a square building. And so um, the idea is like, let's really get to know each other. This is what it's about. This is what knowing and loving each other is. You can the way to love someone. the 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 highest form of love, I think, is is vulnerability, because God is the most vulnerable being who exists. And Jesus certainly, if Jesus portrayed God, then we certainly see a whole life of vulnerability. And so, when we become vulnerable to one another. You know, uh, people like to say, well, we only build at the speed of trust. Well, number one, the modern church doesn't give opportunities for that trust to build. But secondly, it, it just doesn't have opportunities to us really get to know each other except for a superficial level. And so when we build with this idea of being vulnerable because God is vulnerable, he created human beings to be vulnerable. And when we can do that, we move at the speed of courage, right? Mm-hmm. And the speed of courage can get us um, to a community and a real church, because that's what church is, it's community. It's not this building, this formality, and all these things that we do. Um, and when we really love each other in relationship, you know, uh, that's when we begin to say, okay, we can, because we love each other, we can take the difference. In fact, we not just will put up with it, but we'll celebrate the difference, because the difference is what makes us grow, both as human beings and both closer to the Creator. And so um, we've we've got to look at this unity and diversity, and uh, and and sort of like begin to go put less emphasis on doctrine and more emphasis on what we do together, um, and who we are together, and uh, less on this uh, you know money into buildings and more money into people in our communities around us. I love that scripture. It says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." Most people come to a church and they taste and they they try it for a little while, but then they realize. Some of the loneliest experiences they'll ever have are in church, yeah. which is which is the opposite of of what we're supposed to be. So those are the kinds of things. But the other thing is to to adapt. We think that when we build these structures, mostly built on homogeneity, right, on us being the same, that that's strong, but that's actually weak. Those are non-adaptive structures. They can't adapt when the world changes. They can't adapt when people begin to, when um, brown people become more popular than white people, you know, and then mm-hmm. other white people have to go, well, we have to maintain our power because that's, that's safety. All of that's the opposite. We're missing what's really important to our creator. And so, you know, we have to learn to adapt. We have to adapt and get out of these, you know, crazy buildings that we put so much money into. Um, we need to get back into uh, being in God's world. Uh, there's a there's a number of churches now, who, Wild Church, for example, who go out in nature and they leave their cell phones, you know, uh, at the door or wherever, and they put them all away and they they come out and they just enjoy God's beauty and read the scriptures and maybe someone talks about that from a perspective, you know. And these are the kinds of things, especially young people, you know, are looking for. They want community. They want Gen X and Gen Z in particular 
Um, and I'm sorry, Gen Z and millennials in particular, but Gen X too, they, they want community. They want, um, they don't want this, you know, our old, uh, homophobias and, and polluting the earth and sexism and everything else. You know, they realize, you know, that they've been handed a bill of goods. And so the church isn't the one that's adapting and filling that need when we, we need to be that because we have the power. And when I talk about power, I'm not talking about power over. I'm talking about the kind of power that, that Jesus talked about, which is real yeah. power. Because those of you who are the greatest are going to be the servants, right? That's power. Um, don't act like the Gentiles who lord over each other, but serve one another. We think that's some kind of an ethic. That's a lifestyle. Sorry, I kind of got the preaching there. Oh, no, this is so good. And I, I think you've given some really practical, wise, I mean, it's about community. It's about investing in people and relationships. And that's that requires courage and vulnerability and elevating voices that might not otherwise be heard and getting outside your building. I mean, you've just said some really important things. And I want to go to a place that you just barely mentioned earlier that I think is really Really important. So we take those concepts that you've talked about the church's role today and then apply it to a place that I think the church has really, really wrestled with. And I mean local congregations, but I mean also denominational structures and such. And that is how we engage indigenous population, persons of color, and how we've create a depend created a dependency. And we've done it in our country, and you say we've done it in our churches, and we see it, right? So You've actually written a lot about this and about kind of a decolonized approach to Christian theology and what, what it means to think differently about how we engage this diversity and what it means to be the church. So can you, then this is a hard place. This is a very hard place that, and we keep repeating patterns um, in our country, but also globally. And so can you speak to that and and what are some ways to break those patterns? Yeah. Well, I think Jesus uh, spoke to it when he spoke to what's known as the rich young ruler. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll be healed. Mm-hmm. Um, we are at a place where we're not really willing to give up much. Mm-hmm. We're not willing to give up those fancy buildings. You know, We're not willing to give up our doctrines. Um, we're not willing to give up our money. We're not willing to um, give up our homogeneity. Um, and and above everything else, we're not willing to give up our power over. Hmm. Power over, which is the opposite of what Jesus taught. And so um, what does that look like to change that? That means some brave people have to be able to uh, do some things that have never been done before or have, have hardly ever been done before that we hear about people like St. Francis and we idolize them, but how many people actually emulate him? How many get rid of everything and go live a simplistic lifestyle and get close to nature and, and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, He was a very wealthy person. His father was a merchant. And so, um, and, and we idolize mother Teresa, you know, and people like that, but they don't inspire us enough to do it because our, we're not willing to like look deep at that worldview. So what does it look like? Um, it looks like um, leadership. You know, like one of the things, uh, I'll tell you a story. What, I was in Canada one time. and Well, actually, I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and a Canadian pastor came up to me, and he had a big church. 
denominational church. And, and, and he said, we have native people. We have like a hundred native people that come. And he said, but they don't stay. It's like a revolving door. And I said, well, how many native people do you have in leadership? He said, well, none. And I said, why not? And he said, well, they're just not ready. I said, how many are you getting ready? And so basically he puts his values, his Western values of what leadership is on those people and says, now you have to conform to us in order to be considered a leader. I said, well, you're not going to get native people to stay at your church because as soon as they walk in, they, it's the same old trope. It's the same story. They know what's going on. You know, our, our indigenous people are pretty savvy. Um, we've been observing white folks for over 500 years now, <laughs> and hopefully we've learned some things. But um, the, the thing is, everybody knows that game. And, and some people play it, you know. And, and so then you have indigenous people who basically model, which is what most of our churches are, by the way, uh, modeling the white values and the white Western way of doing things. And I call that a poor imitation of a bad model because we don't, we don't do this, uh, you know, they're low in giving, they're not growing, they're, um, they're small. Like I, I pastored a church of about 70 native people at one time. It wasn't all native, but mostly native. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, was, it was a mega church. You know, it was maybe one of the largest native churches in the United States. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that they, they don't give, they don't grow, they don't, you know, it, because they have a bad model. Instead of saying to the indigenous people, tap into the values that have been passed down by the creator mm-hmm. to your people for so long. And let's see those values. What would a church look like? You know, we built a church like that. We built an outdoor arbor with a fire in the middle and a dirt floor. And in the middle of winter in Carson City, Nevada, you know, I'd get the the nice building that the missionaries built for us. I'd get it all heated up. And then, you know, one of the little old Indian ladies would show up and go, Pastor, we're going to meet outside, right? <laughs> so I'd have to go outside and start the fire and, you know, put the the uh, tent sides down so the heat could stay in. And, you know, and um, because that was that reflected their values. Right. And so, um, uh, but, but how many leaders are willing to do that? How many are willing to share or even give over leadership? And I realized in some denominational structures, I won't mention which ones that's impossible the way that they're structured. Right. So even our structures have to be rebuilt. And what we're seeing in so many denominations is because of beliefs. Again, this is what, you know, happened starting in Europe with the Reformation because the Reformation was just totally bought into Platonic dualism and and beliefs as opposed to actions and uh, loving actions. And so they killed each other, right? And then they formed different denominations. And then, and we continue to do that. And now we're seeing some of our major denominations basically split again because of a belief or a not belief. Whereas what Jesus taught is love one another. And so, and it seems like this seems like for some people, I'm sure it's like, oh, that's so simplistic. That's exactly what it is. It is so simplistic. This is why Jesus was such a genius, because it's as simple as learning to love one another and not, you know, and being willing to accept one another. As Paul said, as Christ has accepted us to accept our beliefs or not beliefs, whatever you believe what you want. I'll believe what I want, but let's come together and love to each other as a community. So are we willing to let go of these things? We can't be healed until we do. I had a student, a doctoral student who came to me one time and he said, I want to do um, a study on leadership under you. 
And I said, I, I can't. He said, why? I said, I've looked at every model of white leadership there is out there. I said, none of them match our indigenous leadership. He said, okay, thanks. He came back in two weeks and he said, I want to do my dissertation on indigenous styles of leadership. I said, I don't know if anything's like that. It's been done before. He said, great. And so uh, he's writing a book right now, but um, his dissertation wow. is wonderful. And, uh, and, and he discovered a, a lot of things when mm-hmm. looking at it through his non-indigenous eyes and looking at indigenous leadership and said, it's almost the opposite of mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. we would call, you know, white leadership. It's the idea that, you know, you go to a native ceremony and the person who's in charge, you don't know because they're not out front doing everything. They're behind yeah. the scenes kind of trying to hold things together, but, mm-hmm. but you don't know. And, and everybody's looking at each other and, <laughs> and nobody's taking your children away somewhere else. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's just so many differences. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot to learn. I, with the amount of humorous, uh, humorous, I wish, wish it was humorous. The amount <laughs> of humorous <laughs> it's been built among our male Anglo folks uh, that they always have to be right. I don't know if that can happen. You know, it's up to, you know, new folks uh, coming through. It's up to women who are starting to gain places in the church to, uh, you know, to, to do things. I always ask for, I have, a, I have a male doctor right now, but it's, it's the first male doctor I've had in years who would listen to me. And I always ask for woman doctors and they would say, well, why do you want a woman doctor? And I'd say, because they're the only ones that listen. Hmm. The other ones already know everything, right? And I think it's the same, unfortunately, among not all, but much of our pastoral leadership. It's like they've already got the answer. So why do they need to listen? When listening is the one of the highest forms of respect you can give another person. Oh, so much. So, so much to lean into there. But I'm wondering, Randy, if we can take it a little bit personal. Okay. I'm wondering if you could talk about an indigenous practice that's been particularly meaningful to you. And could you share that with us and share why it's been meaningful? So, um, I thought you were going to ask me about like, you know, my marriage and things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my wife's not right that personal. <laughs> <laughs> um, not that personal. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I am, uh, I, I it, you know, it's taken, you know, we've been married for 34 years now and, you know, I'm constantly learning from her and learning how to listen better. So this is not a practice that I have, you know, I'm perfect at. So. You know, there's simple personal ceremonies, um, and then there's public ceremony. Uh, like I've been running Sweat Lodge for mm-hmm. 35 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a Sweat Lodge is a it's kind of like a sauna, kind of a mm-hmm. kind of a combination of like a a Swedish sauna and a, a you know a Wednesday night prayer meeting um, under uh, you know the, the, the these blankets and tarps and the, and and if the two of them got married, they had an indigenous baby, right? Then that would be the part of our So, um, so it's a place though where we we pray and we sing and we share from our hearts and are vulnerable and um, uh, and then at the same time, our bodies are being purified and it's completely dark in there and and uh, you know people will share in that darkness their vulnerabilities and and you know it's so sacred that I've never. In all my years of, of doing and going to sweat lodges, I've never heard one person say what I hear every time there's an intimate moment among uh, groups, similar groups outside the sweat, among 
uh, Europeans. And that is, I've never heard anybody say, now we need to make a, a covenant that whatever is shared in here, we don't share outside the circle. Mm-hmm. Nobody does that because it would be unthinkable. It's too yeah. sacred a time, right? Yeah. And so um, this is part of the protectionism that we built in to our systems. It's it's like I talk about, you know, that sort of thing is, is similar to the idea of our, our uh, uh, national parks and things. We, we have to actually set aside places and make them w- without human inhabitants, which they'd had before, so that we don't destroy them, right? It's like what kind of people has so little faith in their own worldview that they know that they'll destroy everything if they don't set something aside? Um, this is crazy, right? And this is the worldview that we've been handed and and the one that we've got to find our way out of. But on a personal side, you know, I get up in the mornings, um, in our, in our old days, our Cherokee people built their villages on rivers and creeks. And every morning they would go down to the water. The men would go to one place and women would go to another place and, and they would, um, pray and we do what's called water ceremony. And it was uh, the way that every day began. And so I, I don't have a creek on my property, and I'm not sure I would actually go out to it if I did right now. But um, <laughs> I got snow and ice, but I do have you know something as simple as a sink. And so every morning I get up and I do that. I wash my face um, with the water. I pray. And sometimes I sing, and mm. I pray for the day for the things to go on. And so um, these are the kinds of things that are, are meaningful to me. Yeah. Nice, beautiful. So we're going to end our time with some rapid fire questions. So don't have to think too much about this. Just a quick, you know, what comes to mind? What is something most people generally misunderstand about indigenous Americans or American Indians? Probably the main things are humor. Mm. Um, They've been taught that native people are stoic. And most Mm. people, my friend, Brian McLaren, uh, mm-hmm. Talks about the the first time he was around native people. Where there was there was this uh, thing in Washington D.C. I forget what it was, but and uh, uh, there were four native guys. And a friend called him and said, "You know, these guys uh, hotel canceled. They they don't have a place to stay. Can they stay with you?" And he says, "You know, it's the best time I ever had in my life. It's just laughing and joking, and a, you nice. know, and it surprised him, right? So I think it, that's a that's a big surprise." Yeah, is that Native people are actually really funny, and that we like to laugh and have a good time. Great. What is one question that leaders can ask that invites them and the, their people, if you will, to have a, a more decolonized point of view? Well, I think um, you know, decolonization is just a process of peeling back the onions, right? Uh, the skins of the onion skins. There's one layer after the other, but once you get started, you know, you, you really, the whole thing unravels. So I think being open to questions, which is, you know, the, the, uh, about everything, but maybe the first question they should ask themselves is uh, where am I not being vulnerable? Hmm. Beautiful. Thanks. If we were to come visit you in Oregon, what would you be most excited to show us? Mm, Probably to cook for you. Oh, I'm I'm coming. <laughs> both my both both Edith and I um, cook, and she's a great cook, and uh, and I'm okay. So, um, but we like to we like to cook for folks. 
And Lovely, beautiful gift of hospitality and welcome. So finally, we're asking all of our guests this season um, a final question. So as you consider the realities of this world, many of which we've named, and the leadership to which you have been called, what do you want to be remembered for? Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. As, as you get older in age, you kind of start thinking about that stuff, right? <laughs> what kind of ancestor do I want to be? Yeah, exactly. And, and what kind of and right now? The question I'm asking myself is, what kind of elder do I want to be? Yeah. Um. So uh, I, I think um, probably if I leave my mark on this world, it would be, uh, you know, if I'm looking at my tombstone, maybe something like um, he had integrity. Mm. Yeah, integrated in all that you are and think and do. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, this has been such a rich and stimulating conversation. Thank you so much, Randy, for being with us today. Thanks. I appreciate the questions. I, these these were great questions, by the way. Thank you. You know, you can you can have a conversation with one good question that will last forever, more than a hundred questions that are shallow. So, thank you for for being willing to do that. Amen and amen. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Learning and Innovation Team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners. Visit our website at ignitingimagination.org and share episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson. On behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.